But let's take our Bibles this morning and let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, this is a, this is a great epistle uh, that is in the Word of God. It debunks almost every religious system, if not all religious systems, to the true one. Verses 1 through 3, let's look at that. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for this word. I pray that you would use it to bring it to our hearts in a way that shows us the grand plan of God and the power that we have as believers to endure this race that you've called us to and to finish it. May you receive the glory this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Last time I left you, I left you with the thought that we are God's unfinished symphony. That the final movement of the symphony that which completes the whole will not sound forth until we stand before the throne of God and of the Lamb in our glorified bodies. This always must be kept in faith's sight, that even faith's reward in this life is only partial fulfillment of the promise. The fullness of what God has in mind for us would not be known until we stand before God beyond the grave. That's why we need faith. So we'll never fully realize what God has for us in this life, only in heaven. If we look to the end of, look at, over to chapter 11, verse 39 again, the end of the verse, it says, that they did not receive the promises or did not receive what was promised. Verse 40, because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. It is our turn to live on this earth and to endure by faith, to believe the unseen, to trust God's promises to wait and hope expectantly on our great God and Savior who will bring His promises to an ultimate fulfillment. I guarantee it, based on His Word. Why? Because we have a great cloud of witnesses that had finished the race and are waiting for us to finish. In verse number 1 of chapter 12, it says there, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us those are all the people that i've mentioned already in the the chapter 11 of hebrews all those people who have been listed there and that's not all, all of them that's only some of them see it's the kind of faith the ancients had and that faith enabled them to endure through all kinds of difficult situations not an easy life none of them Difficult life, right up into the end. And so here in verse number 1, we are grouped in with those who have gone before us. It says, therefore, since we have, we have so great a cloud of witnesses, let us. So we're grouped in with this whole group of those who've gone before us, who lived by faith, and he says, okay, they did it, you do it. What they have, you have, and we have more. 
Why? Because in many ways we're like them. Our faith comes to us in the same way. Our faith has the same object, the true and only God, the creator of the heaven and earth, and who's given us special revelation in the scripture. Our conflicts are similar because we both live in a sin-cursed world. And its current thoughts are being pressed upon every generation to oppose God and oppose God's rule. Our weaknesses are the same. We're butt flesh. We're going to die. We get sick. We bleed. We can get hurt. So we need strength from on high. Our spiritual needs are the same. We need a Savior. They were before the cross, we're after the cross. We both need a Savior. Old New Testament, both looking at the cross. You're saved the same way. Abraham was saved by faith, looking to Christ. We're the same, saved the same way. And so therefore, we both need a Savior. All people need a Savior. Our hope is the same, God's promises. Our destination is the same, the city of God. So in all the Old Testament figures, these were examples of enduring faith. And even though their life of faith is presented as unfulfilled, the goal of their journey and the fulfillment of their faith was to be found in the person of Jesus Christ. So it will be for us who live right now We are called to emulate their faith. We are called to press on, just like them. We are called to finish what God's called us to. And what has He called us to? He's called us to a race. He's called us to a race. All of us know something about races. But really, this one is a foot race. Why are we to press on in faith? Well, there are three reasons that I want to let you in on this morning. The first one is this. We're to press on because of the race. Look at verse number 1. It says this in chapter 12. But look at the last part of the verse first. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Who is he talking to? He's talking to believers, and he's saying, listen, uh, you're in a race now. Before you were in a race, as we sang this morning, as a hell-bound sinner, you were in that race. Now you're in a new race. And you all have to run it. And God wants us to run it well. But there's a way to run it well. There's a proper way to run it well. And if you remember back in chapter 10 of verse number 36, and you may just want to turn back there a second, and look what it says there, because there it told us that we needed, we all, all of us, have a great essential need. And what is that need? Verse 36 of chapter 10, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done all the will of God, you may receive what was promised. See, that's what we need in this life, we need endurance. He uses the word in that passage as a verb, to mean, meaning to persevere, to absolutely and emphatically persevere under all kinds of misfortunes and trials, and to, while you're doing that, to hold fast your faith in Christ, to hold fast your faith in the promise. Here the word, in chapter 12, is in its noun form. And it means steadfastness. It means constancy. It means endurance. Ours is a strenuous race that demands steady perseverance, constancy, and endurance. And you're in that race. Now, if you are a believer, you'll want to take special note about three important facts concerning the race. 
And here's the first one found in verse number 1. It says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Now, I didn't really cover that. The first reason why we run this race is because we have witnesses. Someone who's bore witness to something for our sake. All right, cloud here refers to a large, massive flock of faithful people that have gone ahead of us. And they are now, in a sense, a large heavenly flock. At any time on the earth, there's just kind of a small earthly flock. They have finished. They're in heaven. They're in the great, the great crowd of those who've gone before us and lived by faith. And they're, in a sense, waiting for us. So the crowd of witnesses, they are not surrounding us like spectators, per se. They have gone on to their heavenly rest, but their past life that has been cataloged for us in chapter 11, and their death, the way they died, how they looked at the future, how they looked at eternity, eternity still speaks to us about what it means to be faithful and what faith really is. That's what I've been preaching on. That's what it is when you look at their life. This is what faith is. This is how it looks when it's lived out in your life. They were witnesses who have gone before providing meaning to our present struggle. They were witnesses who have gone before us to bear testimony to the certainty of our success. They finished... There with the Lord in heaven, we can finish. See, it's an encouragement to us. The certainty of success in this race is guaranteed to the believer. But it doesn't mean that God just does everything for you and that he runs the race for you. He doesn't do that. He says, you run the race. You learn to live by faith in the promises I've given you, in the word I've given you. You learn to trust me in this life and show it in your life. That's what faith is. Show it. Let me see evidence of how you live by faith. See, they bore witness to the possibility of a life of faith. It's possible to live by faith. Even though when you look in the word of God and you look at your life, it seems impossible to do what God asks us to do. But here's this great cloud, a great crowd of people in heaven who's done it. And they've done it on less than we have. They didn't have the whole canon of Scripture. They didn't even have the cross yet. In the sense we have it, we have way more than them. That means that our race is more informed than their race. And they made it. So the possibility of faith and living by faith is real. And they bore witness to the faithfulness of God's promise. And that's before the incarnation. They showed living by faith in God's promise and God's presence and God's power is all worth it. I don't think any one of them would have said, I would do it different. Every one of them are not coming back, why would you want to? Right? Every one of them are there in God's presence. So see, we, we run this race because we have witnesses that have gone before us for our encouragement and has left us with a tremendous legacy to carry on the baton and keep going. But there's a second fact in this verse about this race, and it's the nature of the race. Look at what it says in verse number one. It says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witness surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance. And then it says this, and the sin which is so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, the nature of the race is simply this. 
that it is a race. The nature of the race is that you are in it. I'm in it. You're in it. And we're to give all the effort that we can to cross the finish line. But get this. It is not a race to determine how fast you run. Neither is it a race that is competition with others. But it is simply a race to determine success or failure. Success or failure on reaching the goal. So the point of the race is not the one who is first. Because we have a great cloud of witnesses already there. See, the point of the race is finishing. Right? Finishing. You started out, you believed in Christ, you discovered from the Word of God that you're in a foot race. And the point is, finish the race. You're not done until you're in heaven. So really don't worry about that. That's already covered. It's your concern to be responsible. It's your concern to run the race. So, you see, we need to think that the Christian life is a foot race. It's more like a cross-country race than any other kind of race I can think of. You know why? If you ever ran cross-country, cross-country races have ditches. And they have rugged fields filled with briars. They have hills and steep declines. They have briars and protruding roots that you trip over. In other words, a cross-country race has, has all kinds of obstacles. That's how life is, right? That's how the Christian life is. God never said that he would give you a bouquet of roses, did he? He never promised, promised that in Scripture. He never promised that you would be healthy, wealthy, and fine in Scripture, never. But he promised this, that he would give you faith. And he would enable you to run the race so you don't run it on your own willpower and your own power of the flesh. You can't do that. He promised that he would run the race with us. So the purpose of, the, of this race is just to finish the course. Finish this long-distance race despite the hardships, despite the exhaustion, despite the pain, despite what you're going to go through because you're a believer in this world, and just finish. Part of running this race well is removing those things which will slow you down and hinder you from making good progress. So see, there is a next thing that the Word of God tells us about this race, the nature of this race, and that it has hindrances to it. We have to remove those hindrances. In fact, there are two general areas which we must pay close attention and then be deliberate about and responsible about laying those things aside. Now, what am I talking about? In verse number 1, again, it says, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance. Let me just stop there. Every encumbrance. An encumbrance is a weight. That's the literal word for it. Weight, bulk, mass. Here, translated encumbrance, burden. It's really an athlete in the ancient times would strip for action both by the removal of extra body weight by rigorous training and by removal of all clothing before he runs. So nothing would hold him back. So what must we do? According to this passage, we must strip off everything that impedes performance in our life. If you're going to travel far, you travel light. You probably don't do it the first time. 
But the second and third time when you travel long, you travel light. You know why? It's a burden to carry all those luggages all over the place, right? And if you, if, you, if you can buy it there, you buy it there. If you can send it ahead, you send it ahead. But you don't carry it. I've learned that. I'm learning that. The first time you go on vacation with kids and car seats, there's more stuff in that thing just to go and spend a week somewhere. It's amazing. So you've got to get rid of the stuff. But before you were a Christian, these things did not hinder you. These things were part of your life. But now that you're in the race, they must be discarded. A hindrance is something otherwise good that weighs you down spiritually. In other words, it's not necessarily, in this part of the passage of Scripture, sin that we're talking about here. But we are talking about this, looking to yourself. Looking at your life, you now have come into this race, you now have trusted in Christ, you're now a believer, you have the Word of God in your hands now, you have the Spirit of God living in you, and so therefore now you're beginning to look at your life. And the Bible is saying, listen, these are the things you must discard from your life. Now, what are they? There's no list here. But just look at your life. See, you have to make a massive adjustment as to how you use your time and what you think about and how you use your talents and how you use your resources. You have to think about all those things. In fact, just look at your life. Look at the habits that you've had when you come into the Christian life you may have to get rid of that habit it may be just a habit of being lazy it may be the habit of just being self-centered about everything you do it could be earthly pleasures that you were so involved with it could just be your desire to have leisurely fun you work and on friday it's fun time it could be just being on Facebook all the time and trying to figure out everybody's information and what's going on in everybody's life. And it just consumes your time. You may have to get rid of that or scale it down to a manageable... Why? Because it impedes your spiritual growth. It holds you back in the race. In fact, it sometimes gives you negative information and information for gossip that you have to get out of your life could be blogging and internet stuff and video games and craving for good times or entertainment or self-indulgences or prosperity you desire to get enough money so you can what be comfortable and live nice right so all you do is work to get money and get gain so you can have worldly ease and you can take the path of least resistance. Well, if you're in this foot race, and it's like a cross-country race, you have to be ready for the ditch in front of you. You have to be ready for the tree that fell down not too far along the way. You have to be ready for those things. And if you've got too many weights on you, you're not going to get there. You're not going to make it. You're going to fall on your face. So see, you have to look at your life, and you have to say, what is in my life that is not necessarily sinful that needs to go because it hinders my spiritual growth. It hinders my testimony for Christ. It hinders how much time I give to the Lord and to God's people. Remember, when you became a Christian, it's no longer about you, it's about us. That's why he's using in this passage of Scripture, us, 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 us. It's the let us bowl of Scripture. It's the church. See, it's about us together running the race. Keeping each other in the race. It could be that you need, need to lay aside associations. Clubs you belong to. Groups you hang out, used to hang out with. And maybe still do. Friendships. When I became a Christian, a lot of my friends went. 
I gave him the gospel and I never saw him again. My life was different. I didn't do what I used to do anymore. I didn't like and desire what I used to do anymore. So friendships have to go. It doesn't mean when you get stronger and grow, you couldn't have contact with them again, but in a whole different way, a whole different manner of relationship because now you know what you ought to do. You know what's going on in your life. You know you're in this race and you want to run well. So sometimes friends have to go. You can't spend the time you used to spend. You know why? They are living a totally self-centered and worldly life and their pursuits are totally different than yours. And if you hang around with them, you will become like them doesn't mean that you're not a believer it means that they're holding you back from what you could be and the spiritual growth God God wants to accomplish in your life it will finally go because you'll finally realize that listen groups or friends or other people whatever it may be the list can go on and on you got to look at your life I don't know you you know you it's different for you than me but along the way start discarding the stuff so you can run the race, so it doesn't mess up your mind, so it doesn't clog up your thoughts, so the cross ever becomes clearer as you dump off stuff yourself wanted all the time. See, these are all weights, and they keep us back from running the race. We must shed them as an athlete sheds their tracksuit when they go to the starting mark. You always see the athlete taking off his tracksuit, right? Getting there, getting down to the skimpiest little thing possible. Why? Don't want any resistance. That goal line, that's all they have in their mind is that goal line. They have in the mind, of course, in a, in a, a sprint race of just finishing quickly. But in a long-distance race, too, it's about the long haul. It's about the pace. It's about the obstacles along the way. It's about thinking about your strategy. It's about, listen, i got to watch out for my body. i got to watch out for what I'm doing. i got to watch out. I have enough water. i got to watch out for all these things. And, and so why? Because the goal is to finish. That's what the goal is. And that's what the Christian life is. It's like some long clinging robe. In those days, it would have been not a tracksuit. It would have been some kind of long robe that probably went down to the ground to keep their body warm. But see, that robe would be restrictive. And so they would have to unravel it from them. And they would have to throw it off so they can run. Could you imagine running in a robe? And you'd be falling all over your face in just no time, right? But see, that's the point. Get rid of those things in your life. What are they? Start looking. If you haven't been looking, look and see. See, this is practical stuff here. This is, see, look in your life and get it out. Get it out. But there's a second thing it says in verse number one. Not only are we to lay aside every encumbrance, every weight, every burden, but we are to lay also aside the sin but notice what it says which easily entangles us little qualifier on that we're to lay aside the sin that easily entangles us the word actually connected to this word easily means surround you ensnares you just a few buttons need to be pressed and you're off in this end it doesn't take long see what is it now just by way of illustration an illustration from the sundew plant you may not have heard of that but it has a great illustration of entangling sin. A sundew, sundew plant is really a plant that flies like because it has a sweet nectar connected to it. It oozes with sweet nectar. And of course, you know anything that's sweet, we have a lot of flies. When we were over there in um, Algeria, they told us it was fly season. 
I didn't see too many flies until I laid, I put my half-eaten apple in front of me, and I looked over, and I couldn't see the apple. So it's one of those pictures there, right? Because they, they all were drawn to the apple, and in a desert place, there's not too many apples you're going to find anywhere. And so here, the fly lands on the leaf of this sundew plant to taste one of the glands that grow there, and instantly, three crimson-tipped finger-like hairs bend over and touch the fly's wings, holding it firm by a sticky grasp. The fly struggles mightily to get free, but the more it struggles, the more hopelessly is coated with adhesive. Soon the fly relaxes. But in the fly's mind, things could be worse because it extends its tongue and feasts on the sundew's sweetness while it is held there more firmly by still even more sticky tentacles. When the captive is entirely at the plant's mercy, the edges of the leaf fold inward, forming a closed fist. Two hours later, the fly is an empty, sucked piece of skin. Isn't that what sin is? Isn't that how sin does it? Just kind of slowly gets its sticky hands around you. And you kind of enjoy it. It's sweet. It's pleasurable. And then what happens? It entangles you. And you can't get out. Sin is bondage. That's what it is. And so the Bible is saying to us here, listen, you need to, it says it a special way, lay aside every sin that easily entangles you. You must put it off. Put off everything that hampers you from running this race. These could be any sins. Anything particular to you that easily ensnares you, you have to ask yourself, what sin easily ensnares me? Could it be anger? A little chip on your shoulder all the time, and boop, somebody nicks it off, knocks it off, and you're ready to year off. See, that, that needs to be put aside. If you're a believer, you can put it aside. Hatred, maybe. You always have this secret hatred going on for people in your heart. They may not know it, but you know it. I don't like that person. I don't like this girl. I don't like that student. I don't like this person sitting next to me. I don't like my coworkers. You know, you do all that kind of stuff, and yet you have to realize those are the very things you need to get out of your life. They're sin before God. Criticism. Always. I never saw the spiritual fruit of criticism in Scripture. Have you? It's, it's just not there. It doesn't mean that we don't objectively make arguments and, and, and in a good way help other people correct their behavior by admonishment and sometimes rebuke. But criticism is a little different than that. Critical, always critical about everything. You know, the sun's out, it should be raining today. The rain, it's raining today, the sun should be out. No, no, no matter what you say, somebody takes the opposite approach. Maybe it's covetousness. You want what your neighbors have, but you know you probably will never get it, but you still covet and wish, they, wish, wish you had what they had. Maybe it's laziness. You're just not motivated about anything, especially not this Christian race. Envy. Lust. We live in a culture that feeds our eyes with images and sexual innuendo that tempts both men, women, and young people alike, and it is entangling. It needs to get out. It needs to be laid aside, finally. Why? Because you know it's holding you back. You know that it needs to be out. It could be slander or complaining, or grumbling, or hypocrisy, 
or pride or just an unthankful spirit about everything. It could be greed. It could be, as Hebrews brought out, unbelief. I know this is true, but I really am not believing it. That's not faith. That's sin. And unbelief leads to all kinds of sin. Matter of fact, it leads to idolatry. Because you'll end up making your own God and worshiping that God and call that God Jesus. But it's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's your own made idol, Jesus. See, we have to be careful that we don't let a root of unbelief gets in, which causes bitterness, a root of bitterness to rise up in us, which causes all a multitude of kinds of sin that come out. So whatever it is, whatever must be laid aside and left behind, please do that. Why? It will hinder you from running the race. It will hold you back from running the race. And no conscientious runner is going to keep that kind of burden in their life. Many times, runners who are really serious who are going to take a long-distance run, they don't even have contact with people a week before they run. So they have no negative stuff coming into their mind. So their full focus could be on running and seeing the goal and finishing. See, they lay aside those things for the purpose of finishing the race. Now, you know what? The Word of God often brings up and brings to the attention of the readers of Scripture these very principles. For example, take your Bible for a minute. Let's look at a few passages. Romans chapter 13. Paul, writing to the Roman church, actually at the end of much theology that he has given in Romans, begins in chapter 12, usually 13 onward, on a more, more practical level, and he says this to the church. Romans 13, verse 12. It says, the night is almost gone, the day is near, therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness. There's the lay aside the deeds of darkness. And then this, it's the lay off and put on, put on the armor of light. Verse 13, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy and then here it is put on the lord jesus christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to his lust see it's saying there listen if you want to grow and offer your body in chapter 12 a living sacrifice holy and acceptable so you may know the good and perfect will of god then you have to lay these things out of get them out of your life and lay them down for good lay them down and leave them there don't go back and pick them up a runner never goes back they always go forward there's another passage, Colossians chapter 3, verse 8 through 10. Again, Paul is saying something quite similar to them. And he says this in verse number 8 of Colossians 3. But now you also put them all aside. Same language. Verse number 8, Colossians 3. Put them all aside. And what does he say? Anger, wrath, malice slander and abusive speech from your mouth do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices verse 10 and have put on the new self who is being renewed to the true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him see this is that putting off but see, you don't put off and that's it you put on you have to put on righteousness you have to put on the right garment you can't be walking around in a sense spiritually naked See, there's always the principle of, listen, lay this aside and don't let there be a void there. Fill that void with the right things, with the right, right way of living. And then Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 to 24, again Paul writing to this church, talking about living in the heavenlies, and he says in verse number 22 uh, of chapter 4 of Ephesians, that in reference to your former manner of life, this is the way you used to live, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of the seat, and that you renew, 
Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And then verse 24, and put on the new self, which is in likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And then, without turning there, a couple other ones I just want to mention to you. James chapter 1, verse 21. James is a very early book in the New Testament. Maybe the first book. So James says this, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, in humility instead receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. And then Peter writing, he says, Therefore, chapter 2, verse 1, putting aside, he's saying, listen, if you don't want the sincere desire of the milk of the word to be distinguished or extinguished or put down, then you've got to lay aside these sins. Because sometimes you can't hear the word of God is because you've got all this garbage in your life. You've got all this stuff in your life that you have to drop off. He says this to them, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word. He's not saying here, listen, a newborn babe longs for the new uh, pure milk of the word, and then newborn babes don't need that anymore. He's saying, listen, you who are believers always should be like newborn babies and long for the pure milk of the word, the unadulterated milk of the world, word, the word that hasn't been fooled around with by men. That's what you need to desire. That's what Christians want. They want the word of God. That's what's going to sanctify you and set you apart more and more to God. In fact, it's going to cause you to lay aside those weights. Because it says in Peter 2, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. So this race is far, far more important than you think. Because it has eternal consequences. It even shows who you are. It shows your desire on who you serve. It shows in your life what you love and what you're willing to spend your time and your money on. That's what it shows. And all those things are very, very clear in your life and my life. And so therefore... You need to lay them aside. Everything that handicaps you must be cast off and laid aside so that you are not needlessly hindered but run at peak performance. That's what he's saying here in this book. These things and things like them can no longer be our focus. Now look at Hebrews, back at Hebrews chapter 12 in verse number 2. Because we're not we're to look at ourselves, but if we look at ourselves too long, we're going to get in trouble. You realize that? Because, so he says in verse number two, very clearly, and the, my second point is that we are to press on because of the source and focus of the race. And what is it, verse number two? Simply this, fixing our eyes on who? Jesus. Look to yourself, see what you need to drop off, get rid of your sin, and don't keep your eyes on yourself. Now fix your eyes on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. The Word actually warns us to be proactive. It, it really literally means to turn the eyes away from other things and fix them on something else. In other words, look away from the distractions, look away from the sins, and fix your gaze upon Jesus. Why? Because Jesus, our high priest, imparts to us everything necessary to help us finish to run the race. That's why. You're not going to get your strength from anyone else but Christ himself. Now, what, what does the writer of Hebrews mean by that? Well, the second thing we're to focus on is we're to focus on Jesus as the source. If you notice in verse number 2, it says this. We're to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. So he is, in other words... 
the one who started it. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 10, it says there that Jesus is the author of faith. He is another way of putting it, he's the pioneer of faith. He's the one who is the forerunner, the one who blazes the trail. It says in chapter 2, verse 10, for it was fitting for him for whom all things and through whom all things, and then it says, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. See, so, so the Son, Jesus Christ, had undergone infinite debasement in order to be in a position to meet the need of undeserving sinners. So it was fitting for him because the grace that saves hell-bound sinners does not come without a price. Justice must serve a holy God. Payment cannot be simply overlooked. By the grace of God, it was necessary that Jesus fully tasted death for all of us. And for what reason? So he can not only be the starter of the process, but he will be the finisher. That's why it says it in verse number two, that he is the author, the starter, the beginning, but he is the perfecter, the completer, the one who finishes it, the completer of faith. In fact, back in Hebrews 5, the saving role of Christ as high priest accomplishes what no other high priest could have accomplished before him. And it says in verse 9, And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. So in other words, it was always through Christ that we would be saved. When Christ gives himself as a propitiatory sacrifice, he satisfies what God requires. Because God requires the death penalty for sin. And his just, justice demands that life is poured out. And of course, Jesus is the one who pours out his life for us. That means when a repentant person, sinner, obeys Jesus, the source of their eternal salvation, then God's wrath and justice toward that person is satisfied. How? It starts by faith. It ends by faith. So Christ's sacrifice then sets aside sin, purifies the people who come to Christ and makes them clean, delivers men and women from judgment, from God's judgment, and then averts the wrath of God and sends it off deflects it off. So Jesus, as the great and eternal high priest, takes care of everything that pertains to our relationship with God and enables us to and empowers us to finish the race. Look at chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 14, where it says quite clearly in this passage, for by one offering... He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Jesus makes us complete and perfect before a holy God and then sets us apart while we're in this world for God himself. So see, the focus has to be, again, on the cross and what the Lord's done. In fact, our focus is on Jesus, but specifically in verse number 2 of, his, uh, of Hebrews, it's on His humanity. It says there in verse 2, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. That's what He did. That's His humanity. That's what Christ came to do. That Jesus is the supreme encouragement to persevere in the race because Jesus, in His humanity, what does He do? He has something laid before Him. He has joy set before Him. 
And some people may say, well, what is that joy? I believe it's the joy of finishing. It's the joy of what happens after the work is done, after the race is done. Because, see, for Jesus, to win his race meant the way of the cross. And that's what Satan was trying to get Jesus not to do. Even speaking through Peter, when he says, get behind me, Satan, he says, you're thinking like men. Jesus just told them, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to suffer at the hands of sinful men, and I'm going to die there. On the third day, I'm going to rise again. But they didn't get it, right? They didn't get it. See, but that's the worldly way of doing it. Let's avoid suffering in the cross and the hard way. Let's avoid that. Let's not go there. Come on, we, we'll put our heads together, and we'll get, another, we'll get another way going, right? See, that's what we try to do. But to win the race, Jesus had to go the way of the cross. Are you willing to drink this cup that I'm about to drink, he said to his disciples. He meant the suffering and death on the cross. So the joy set before him was the glorification and the kingship and the enthronement and the bringing many sons to glory once the cross was accomplished. Abraham could not have been saved unless Jesus died on the cross and accomplished that. You realize that, right? No one could have been saved if Jesus didn't die there on the cross and satisfied the complete and full justice of the Father. They could have never been saved. So what does Jesus do? Verse number two, he endures the cross. It's a race. It's suffering. It's extreme suffering. It's extreme pain. It's extreme humiliation. For who? For his sin? No, for our sin. That's why we look to Jesus. It's about what he did for us. But of course, what he did for us benefits him. And it says there too, despising the shame. What is that? That is the shame of dying the death of a criminal. When you died on the cross, you died as a criminal. As someone who has been found guilty, sentenced, and the penalty was death. And it was a public humiliating shame before people who crowded around when someone was crucified and not only that the shame of dying the death of a criminal was only one part of it the other part of it was to be accounted accursed by God himself cursed is everyone who dies on a tree the curse of God Jesus felt all that on the cross for us See, we can't save ourselves. It's ridiculous. No religious system that is void of the cross can save anybody. What God demands and what God said in his, in his word is, is true. So to, to, persevere, to persevere in the face of crucifixion is the supreme example for us that Jesus' sacrifice was so perfect so final, so sufficient that it gave all who believe in it a permanent justification before the Father and a continuous position before God that will be enjoyed forever. So that cloud of witnesses, they don't want to come back. See, do you want to leave this earth? Or do you want to hang around? You know, I know it's all about, you know, extending your life. Let's all try to live to 100, right? Isn't that the, isn't that the goal today? But you see, the problem is you're going to die. I don't know if, I, I don't want to live that long. I'm going to live, well, I'm going to live as long as God wants me to live. And so are you. But along the way, I want to be used by God. I don't want to be so encumbered by all my stuff and all my sins that I like that like somehow the cross doesn't mean anything? No, the cross, if I'm to look away from myself and look at Jesus, the cross means everything. In fact, this is the next thing it means in verse number two. The end of verse, it says, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So the focus on Jesus is on his exaltation and his enthronement he is the not only the crucified one he is the glorified one he sat down and that's in the perfect tense you know what that means he's still there 
He's still sitting there. Why? He, the plan of God's not done yet, right? Thank the Lord it's not. For many people who haven't trusted Christ yet. See, Jesus, in other words, sitting down means Jesus finished. The work of salvation is done, and after the work is accomplished, Jesus sits down and he takes and assumes the position of authority. To sit at the right hand or the left hand signifies might, majesty, deity. In fact, the seat on the right hand and the seat on the left hand of a king are just another way of saying this is the two most dignified stations in the kingdom. And sitting on a throne at the right hand end of a king indicates that that person sits there and reigns alongside the king. Jesus, Jesus Christ, bears this designation and is equivalent to saying that he is the ruler of the universe. He is the author of salvation. He is the perfecter of your faith. He is the one who finished everything. And if he endured the cross, he will enable us. In fact, in all this, we will need the help of Christ. Why? So we don't slack. You know why? We're slackers. You're a slacker. Or sometimes we just gradually let down our effort. Why? Because we got all this stuff we got to handle, right? Because we have these sins that we, we're not getting out of our life yet. And sometimes we just give out. So here's the next thing we're asked to do in the last thing. And I won't spend time on this. Look at verse number three. It says, for consider him. Now this is different than fixing your eyes on Jesus. You know what this is saying here? Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the goal. We are to press on in the race because of the goal. Jesus is the goal of our race. He is the companion along our way. He has reached glory because he has already made the journey. Endure to the end and reach the goal. He is now our reigning king. And the Bible says here, for consider him. And consider means to think over. It also includes this, to weigh. This is not some light thinking. This is some heavy thinking. What are, what are we actually to consider about Jesus? Well, we're to consider, number one, the perseverance of suffering Jesus underwent. The endurance he went through and suffered for your sake. And secondly, we're to consider the opposition that he encountered from sinners against him. Everybody was against Jesus. You realize that? Read the Gospels, come on. He had 12 guys. One was a demon, forsook him, pretty much. There were people, but they weren't, they weren't jumping on the bandwagon to follow Jesus. See, he endured, it says there, such hostility by sinners against him. It really means to carefully estimate one object with regard to another. Or in other words, compare his unparalleled sufferings with the little you and I pass through on the earth. Have we gone through what Christ went through? Are we going to ever go through that? I mean, let's face it, Satan kind of has us in America because he makes us so comfortable and so safe. When you go to another country that's not like European, you immediately sense a military presence everywhere. 
When we were in Algeria, every mile, it seemed, there was a checkpoint. And they have these big metal things in the road that you have to go around like this. I mean, it's kind of frightening. Like, I don't know, they could check your passport and say, we don't like you, and take you out on the side and shoot you and dig a hole in the sand, and that's it. It's over. See, in America, everything is just too soft, and it makes soft Christians. I'm part of it. I'm, I'm part of that fight, that struggle to want meaning in my life when it comes to serving the Lord with everything. So if I compare it, consider in my mind this, His unparalleled suffering with the little that I have gone through or passed through or will pass through. As it says in verse number 4, which I'll pick up next time, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. We've not gone there. But you know what? In a very real way, we don't have to go there because our Lord's gone there. And if we're elect in the Beloved, we're elect in Christ, right? And so he's done what we could never have done. So we, therefore, are to rely on him for support and help. Didn't it already say in Hebrews that he comes to the aid of those who are hurting as the high priest? Doesn't it say there that he understands more fully what you're going through? Because when he was tempted, he was tempted to the full extent because he never gave in. We give in way too soon, and we don't even know the power of temptation sometimes. We just say, well, I'm just going to sin. Jesus resisted, never gave in. The forces of hell against him, he didn't give in. And he intercedes for you. In behalf of you, he prays for you in his position in heaven. So see, we know he is the perfecter of faith who is seated at God's right hand, having endured the cross and shame for us. We know that, and that is something we ought to think about every single day. Why? Why should we do it? Well, here's the purpose clause. In verse number three, the last part of the verse, so that, here's the purpose clause. Every time you see that, it's always answers the question, why? Why do I do that? For this reason, the purpose for considering Jesus, for laying aside encumbrances and sin, for looking to Jesus is so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In what? In the race. That's why. So by considering Jesus, it will prevent us from growing weary and fatigued in our race. And Jesus will enable you to remain under and hold out even under the most severe trial. Remember, he has his hands on you. He has his hold on you, as a loving father does. I'm getting to this. If you don't want to, or if for some reason you haven't gotten the encumbrances out of your life and you haven't taken care of your sin, you know what's going to say next in Hebrews 12? God's going to chastise you as a loving father. He's going to say, you're one of my kids, you're in the race, and you're going to live like that? I'm not going to let you live like that. I'm going to spank you. I'm going to spank you till you get it out of your life. I'm going to spank you till you get rid of the sin. And I'm going to get it out of your life. And then once you're done with discipline, you're going to find the joy of living for God or of being holy. Look what it says, verse 10, real quick. For they disciplined us for a short time and seemed as seemed best to them. That's our father's. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his what? In his holiness. You see that? See, so see, God is not just saying, listen, if you want to take out the encumbrances and the sin, that's up to you. No, he's not saying that. He says, you better do it. If you're a believer, you will do it. You'll want to do it. You'll desire to do it. Because you know what? That is not, that's holding you down in all kinds of ways in your life. And it's causing unnecessary guilt in your soul 
and it's causing you to be ever so used by the enemy to be a bad testimony to everybody around you. So Christ starts our faith and leads it to its intended goal and consummation. Christ fills us with faith. Christ keeps us in faith. Christ perfects our faith. So don't slow down. Don't sit down. But pace yourself and finish well. Lay aside everything that restricts endurance. Streamline your life and think upon Christ's sufferings in your behalf and also think upon his finished work and his exaltation on your behalf. And as it says in chapter 2, verse 10, where I begin, began there, why does he do that? Why has he done it for this reason? In bringing many sons to glory. What's the goal? I'm going to glory. And it's based on nothing I've done or could have offered God in good deeds and works. That is absolutely ridiculous when you come to a passage of Scripture like this. It's by faith alone in Christ alone, right? That's how someone gets saved. But it continues in faith. So by virtue of Jesus' suffering and death, he has achieved the crowning glory not only for himself, but the crowning glory for us. So I and you, that's the proper way to say it, can finish the race and co can go to glory by God's grace, that is, by God's blessing in Christ towards helpless sinners who only deserve his curse and wrath, but by his grace he's given us his love. Amen? So, my friend, run well. Run well the race and finish. If there's one thing you can have on your tombstone, it should be this. I finished well. Right? That, that'd be a great one. Especially if it goes along with actually the evidence that you did finish well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you once again for the awesomeness of your word. Lord, your word does cut down deep in our heart. It is sharper than a surgical knife. It does reach down to the recesses of our minds and our hearts that we don't often go to. But I pray, Lord, that you would bring to light this morning anything in all of our lives that would be hindering us in this race. And I pray, Lord, this week we would soberly think of what they are and even list them. And then pray, Lord, that you would enable us to make no provision for the flesh concerning that encumbrance or that sin and that we would put it to death by the power of the Spirit who lives in us, by the authority of the Word of God given to us and by our position in Christ Jesus, I pray, Lord, that you would make us people who run well. Thank you. In Christ I pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Please.